Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everyone. I'm Chris Ferguson, your host of You've Championed Yourself. Who are you? It has always been a dream of mine to showcase people who have taken their dreams or ideas and turned them into their reality. As they reach beyond their personal struggles, their pains, their traumas, where so many people gave up, these people didn't. They walked through their obstacles and their challenges, not knowing where it was going to take them. They trusted themselves enough not to give up. To do the follow through in personal life, their career, and in relationships, these are champions themselves. They just don't champion themselves. I'd like to welcome Kelly McDuff today. She's an amazing individual, um, a wisdom teacher, a light worker, and a heart center, all kinds of amazing things we're going to talk about today. But let's welcome Kelly to the podcast. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. The story that attracted me to you was I felt your energy on our call yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I felt all of all of your pain. So what I'd like to talk about is your backstory. Some of the things that were really tough and hard, mm -hmm. but that you made it through. So starting like from childhood. Well, you can you can talk you can talk or just about kind that. of bullet point. Yeah, you can kind okay. of bullet point it, or if a specific incident comes up. Like for me, it's the, one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through were three near death experiences. Yeah. Okay. And so that's usually when I talk, I talk about that. So. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, I grew up with, uh, addiction, alcohol and drugs and, uh, mental, emotional and sexual abuse from a very young age. So from a very young age, um, my mom had mental health um, I don't like to call them issues, but just mental health struggles. And, and, uh, what I later realized is a lot of childhood trauma. So that's where, you know, I realize now my childhood trauma has a lot to do with, you know, my experiences and my perception of this world and, and who's uh, coming into my life. So from a young age, I had men in my life who were supposed to take care of me and, and love me and keep me safe. And they either molested me or raped me and sexually abused me and and used their their power and their dominance and their wounded masculine to overpower me and create fear to the point where I would freeze. And mm -hmm. I didn't know how to use my voice then. I didn't even I got in shit when I would express emotions and outbursts like anger, let's say, was showing up. Um so we were always told to like, you know, if you want something to cry about, I'll give you something to cry about and then get hit again. Or, um, you know, you keep, keep your emotions under wraps. And I was also a very high level athlete. So you, you could not allow your emotional body to take over, um, let's say a game, like a, an important game or, or, you know, at practice, you can't be acting out because it's going to affect everybody. So you know, you were just so conditioned to be so rigid and, and almost to like not have emotions. And, and if you did, they weren't welcomed. So that was kind of my experience from a young age with men. And then my dad and my mom split up when I was four. And I remember multiple times my dad um, held a gun to my mom's head and we had to run to the neighbors and 
he would come home drunk and, you know, they'd be, be like, he'd beat her up and then it'd be yelling and screaming back and forth. And my oldest sister, he'd hold her up against the wall, like, like a foot off the ground and have her by her throat. And, and that wasn't even his biological dad, like daughter. So I'm not sure why he took like that level with her because he did hurt us and, and abuse us, but not, not to that level. And, um, with my mom, when they ended it, she ended up slitting her wrist and she was trying to show him how much pain she was experiencing internally by giving him a physical, like this, like a fuck you, this is how much I'm hurting. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately she did that in front of all of us and, mm. and we got to, to witness that. So we got taken away, put, you know, put into social services. And um, at that time, my mom had to go to a psych award and, and I was too young to know at the time, but I do believe they, they uh, diagnosed her with bipolar. Um, and then she worked her way to get us back. And then she got back on her own feet, but never really, she was strong for us, but she was never strong for herself. What I, mm -hmm. what I would say is she didn't have a backbone and um, no self-love, no self-care. And uh, she tried to live, you know, for us kids and, and support us. She ended up going to welding school and becoming a welder and an oil man, like in, in the oil patch. And it's in a men's world, like redneck, like women don't belong here. They belong in the kitchen and, you know, take cooking dinner, that kind of stuff. I've so, walked that mile. I've walked that yeah, mile back so in the like, day. Yes, I know just, exactly what they're, where that is. Yeah, she was a high achiever on many levels, high performer, very good at everything she set her mind to do. Um, but it ended up, she got into a toxic relationship later on um, when I was in grade five. So my dad, my dad left when I was four. My mom kind of found her way back. It took four to five years and she was raising four kids as a single mom. Um, had, a, had a couple relationships through that, but not healthy ones. And the last relationship she had, I had never seen her as happy for the first year. So from grade five to six, I was like the sparkle in her eye and those belly laughs and she was dancing and just drawing and coloring again, doing those things that really, you know, brought the sparkle to her soul and that joy. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it went from, she was using cocaine, like they were out partying and that's, that's kind of the norm in that oil patch industry, rugged, you go, you work hard and you play hard. And using cocaine is actually quite common in that industry. Mm -hmm. And um, when you make that kind of money, because you make ridiculous amount of money as well, you can afford those kind of drugs. Mm -hmm. So it went from cocaine to crack to heroin within five years. And not because my mom wanted to be an addict, but because she didn't have the strength to get out of it. And she tried many times, but also back, you know, in, in the 2000, 2005, Nobody talked about mental health. Nobody talked about addiction. Nobody talked about, you know, if, if it's drugs or alcohol or shopping or gambling or sex addicts. Like I think all... they did, but you had to acknowledge, acknowledge you had a problem. Otherwise, if I'm drinking and getting drunk and I fall down, I have no problem falling down and getting back up. Mm. As that's my awareness as an, an addiction. Of course. The fact is, is how did all of this affect you as a child? So it affected me by, I only had two emotions, happy and, and mad or, or sad. And I wasn't educated on myself, even in school, like the school knew what was going on. The educational system knew what was going on and social services 
coming into a foster care doesn't mean they're actually doing their due diligence and their mm -hmm. interrogations and, and actually taking these kids outside of these environments and doing, doing, you know, I wouldn't call it an interrogation on the child, but maybe the parents or the foster parents, because what was happening in that foster, when I got removed from my mom's care, and then when she went on her five-year journey, I didn't see her for 16 months at one point. And when I went to this foster care, the, the, the man, the father was raping me for two years the whole time I was there. And that's, I was afraid. I was afraid to say anything because I didn't want to break up a family. It was my best friend's parents because they applied to be my foster parents instead of me going into the system. And yet it was a more um, brutal environment physically for me than the mental and emotional trauma I was experiencing, you know, being with my mom. So it was I a different kind. I, I'm feeling that both would have been ex extremely oh, traumatic next level. regardless. Next level. Yeah. Regardless. Yeah. But the physical, what was happening yeah. to me. Yes. And I just felt paralyzed. You do. You, you have three responses whenever you go into, you have shock, you have fight or you have flight. Okay. And so the fact is, or freeze, it's freeze, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And, um, in, in those responses as children, we don't know how to respond, but I want to say one, I honor you for your testimony. I honor you for your experiences and I honor you for being here today because a lot of people who have been sexually molested fall victim and become in that victimhood or victim status the rest mm -hmm. of their life and don't know mm -hmm. what to do. Yeah. So what I'd like to talk about now is that what sport did you play? So I played every sport growing up, but then when I got to grade eight, I stuck with volleyball and basketball and like indoor volleyball. And um, so my behaviors from, let's say, grade five, when my mom was checked out and, and MIA. So grade five to six, I was like getting drunk, smoking weed, getting in fights, attracting, like kind of had a like a chip on my shoulder, you know. And um, so grade five to six, I was just not on a good not not on a good route and then six to um grade set six to nine pretty much is when i was like figuring out my way who i was without my parents who i was without you know the identity of them and then what i realized is in grade nine i'm gonna i don't know how i made this choice but i made a conscious choice at that age i'm either going to go down the same route as my parents which is unsatisfactory and unrewarding and it's going to end up either me on the streets and dead or, you know, who knows, or I can make a new way, like a way that I don't know, but I have coaches who are supporting me and believe in me and teachers who are telling me I'm worthy and lovable. And uh, yeah, so grade nine, I chose basketball, volleyball. And then from there, I was like the top 100 uh level like athlete in Western Canada for three years in a row, grade 10, 11, 12. Um, so I would get invited to best in the West and down in Vancouver, British Columbia every year. Um, but when I was in going into grade, my grade 11 year, I was at a UNBC um, ID camp and they were, they were trying to scout me for once I hit post-secondary, but I, we turned the ball over, over when I was playing basketball and I was backpedaling, running backwards. And my, I wasn't picking up my feet and I, my shoe gripped to the ground and I slammed my back, just fell like full force. And then I couldn't get up and, uh, but I felt pain, but I thought my, everything I had ever worked for that choice in grade nine, I committed to, I'm going to go 
to post-secondary, I'm going to go to the next level and get my education paid for it. I thought it was all like crashing down. And I was like, grade 11 is like the time to, to get after it, right? <laughs> so being stubborn, I, I drove six hours back home and I was like, you better drop me off at the hospital. Like I can't move. I can't walk. <laughs> and uh, I had crushed three vertebrae and, and mm. just, I was supposed to be on bed rest. I should have had uh, back surgery, but back surgery would have meant I would have been um, like on bed rest and back brace and wheelchair for about nine months recovery time total between surgery, physio and all that. And I said, I don't have nine months. I need to continue working. What can I do um, to, to work through this pain? So the best thing I did was to say, stay strong. And, and uh, there were some days I couldn't walk. I couldn't get out of bed. So I just honored myself. But the days I could, I continued to play volleyball and basketball, but I got hurt two more times in grade 11 and 12. Took a jump shot, girl pushed me in the air, boom, fell on my back. You know, I wish I was a cat landed on my feet every time, but <laughs> unfortunately I was like, oh shit. And then another time I fell on the ice because in Canada it's quite icy and just right. fell the wrong way. And so in grade 12, I had volleyball and basketball scholarships throughout Canada and you know, could have went to the US right away. But uh, with my back, I chose volleyball because it's not a contact sport. Um, you know, when you're well, going to jump. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> I played volleyball in high school and it could get contact going up for the ball at the same time with one of your totally teams. at that level. But yeah. usually post secondary people are standing on their side, you know, where you're going to dive and you know, when you're jumping, whereas basketball, they just take you out, they <laughs> stick their knee out, they tackle <laughs> you like hold your jersey, right? So it was safer for me to go with volleyball, I guess, is what I'm, I, I kind of made that logic in my brain is mm -hmm. if I'm, I'm going to pick one sport, volleyball. And, and then that led me to go to GPRC, which is Grant Prairie Regional College for two years in Grant Prairie. And then from there, my coach got, uh, well, she resigned, but she was going to be fired. Um, so nobody was going to come back and play. And it was actually, I was about to quit on my, my sophomore year, um, people from the US would call it my second year, because it was not fun. Nobody was enjoying it. We were winning games, but it just was not fun anymore. Right. So I moved on and got uh, NCAA scholarship um, to the US, a division one scholarship to the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. So I chose to uh, transfer my junior year, which is your third year. Mm -hmm. Typically, you play two years college, and then you go on to play university. And in Canada, you get five years eligibility to play post-secondary, whereas in the U.S. NCAA, you only get four years. Right. So I lost a year, but yet I gained such a different level of experience. And a full ride down there is like everything paid for. You're treated like the mm -hmm. best. And royalty, royalty. Yeah, no, royalty. I, I coach. I coach flag football for girls royalty. in high school. Uh, absolutely. I understand. Yeah. It. I, I competed oh. in the States, but my source of sport was competitive swimming. Oh, I love I, it. When I was out at the orphanage at eight years old, I learned how to swim and I beat the water up to take out my anger. Wow. I love it. And that's what brought me to the court. I think I took my anger and resentment mm -hmm. and rage and trauma to the court. And it just made me work so hard in, in a it pushed you yes, but it gave you positives, but it gave you reflection. So at, at 13 years of age, I had swam from eight to 13. So in five years, I had gone from not knowing how to swim to be a competitive swimmer, swim against boys, because I knew that would make me faster. <laughs> and then oh, I went I to the junior you. Olympics in the state of Colorado. I grew up out West. So I'm very familiar with Western Canada. 
That's great. And yeah, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, like you said, playing with the boys. And that's what I did to get better because I knew if I could mm -hmm. keep up with the boys, I could play with the girls. Or you could and, beat the girls. No, couldn't well, that if, too. Maybe, yeah. maybe yeah, but, you know, was like, beat the girls. <laughs> yes. So the fact is, is that um, I took the Junior Olympics in my age group at, at 13. Wow. And at the end of every, every group or every, um, they didn't call them groups, or, um, you had different events and you had like four groups in the events. And so the last six swimmers from all the highest times in the last group swam. And I took that in my age group. So then after that, everybody that was the number one person in their, their section swam against each other. Wow. And the girl that beat me was <laughs> a girl named Sharon Gould who went to the Olympics that year and got a silver Olympic gold medal, but I was, so in she the was next level. <laughs> well, no, the thing was, is it, it wasn't in the cards for me because the orphanage wasn't going to allow me to go. Interesting. Why, why is they, that they something they, they just didn't care. not open to? They, they just didn't oh, care. They held you back at that point. So the fact was is so, but I, they couldn't take that away. I mean, girls got rid of my ribbons. They, they were jealous that I was getting all this attention for competing and they couldn't do that. So it was craziness. There was a lot of bullying going on. So no, we have really? dual lives. It, we really do. But I made the same decision at eight years old when my mother dropped us off at the orphanage and drove off. I chased her. Oh. I literally chased her. I literally ran so hard, Kelly. I mm -hmm. ran out of my shoes. And at that point, I heard her accelerate the car and I stopped. And at that point, I just, I quit. I knew anger. I knew hate. I never known that before. I just knew it, but it also gave me my spirit guides that came to me and said, yeah. you're not that person. I you're not that. going to take that path. That's not you. You're not going to. So I made the same decision. If my parents were going to go this way or that way or this way, mm -hmm. I'm taking the opposite direction. Yeah. I'm taking the you less know? road, you know, the travel. Well, it's not less, less travel, travel, but whatever yeah. road they're going down, I'm going out the way <laughs> because their choices are crap. Just yeah. They're shit. Crap. <laughs> they're shit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So at yeah. eight, I learned that lesson. So wow. the fact was, is we have had a lot of similarities. So how, can I ask you a question? Have you ever reconnected with your birth mother? I absolutely did. She she came back in our lives. And for wow. years, all I ever wanted to do was, was to hear her say, I love you. But no I kidding. knew it never happened. But wow. I said to my brother, I said, why did she hate me so much? You blamed yourself. No, no, no. She literally she, hated, she hated me. you. Wow. Yes. My brother told me, he says, he goes, I don't know how true it was because she, yeah. was, she was a pathological liar. Totally. Right. And so she told him, I guess that when she got pregnant with me, my dad allegedly raped her, but she had two more kids with him. So the fact was, is okay, but I get it. Divorce wasn't acceptable back then. You know, we're talking mm -hmm. the sixties. Mm -hmm. So the fact is, is so I don't know, I'm not going to take a side either way, but she tried to abort me three times while she was pregnant. Yikes. It sounds like, sounds like she doesn't have a conscience. She <laughs> conscience. doesn't. She yeah. didn't. She absolutely didn't. But the yeah. fact was, is that I was so determined as a being to come into this world and do the work that I'm supposed to do. I just didn't know I was doing it. You are powerful, powerful. So the powerful fact was, lady. is, I mean, as far as traumas, I had two girls in the orphan orphanage try to murder me. Oh my goodness. 
And I told, I told my creator, cause I gave up on organized religion when the Catholic church was the hand that put me in an orphanage. Oh, that's and so, and so I just gave up on that. And I resort, I re, I resorted to native American spirituality because my father is native American, but that took that's me to so many different beautiful. levels. I practice a lot of that. Yeah. So the fact is, is that um, I made the same choice you did. I was mm. just a little bit younger saying, I'm not doing it this way. Mm-hmm. And since then, I mean, there has been, I've dealt with cancer. I've dealt with a head on car collision. I've dealt with a divorce mm-hmm. and being a single parent at 22 and have to have a hysterectomy because yeah. of, of craziness. How many kids did you have? One. one I had two, two, two births, two children, but one passed and one well, oh, let live. So yeah. needless to say, so we have a lot of similarities. So. We do. And, and I had a couple near death experiences as well from chronic ear infections. And my whole life I struggled with just ear infections, which had turned into a disease called clusteotoma, which is a cyst in your middle ear. Mm-hmm. And it literally just eats away everything in its sight. It ate away all my bones in my ear and into my skull. And it created um, hearing loss and nerve damage. So I actually have a, it's a bone anchored hearing aid. So it's I on might, the back back right? of my head here. Uh-huh. And um, because the, the, the hearing aids that go through your ear canals don't work for me because my hearing loss is in my middle ear. Mm-hmm. So w- there's a titanium screw in my skull. And then from the, so the sound vibrates from the screw to the skull to the inner ear. So it bypasses that outer middle ear. But I had begged my whole life to like, please help me. These eardrops, these antibiotics are not helping me. They're just like making it worse. And there'd be like blood and pus. And it smelled like a, like I'd say a pig farm. Like you could smell it. It was disgusting. Yeah. And it was like rotting from the inside. So when nobody's listening and I'm going deaf, that is next level, like, you feel like you're mental because you're begging for your life. You're saying, I am dying and this is killing me. Please help me to many ENTs, which is ears, nose and throat specialists, like doctors. And they just keep handing me off or cleaning out my ear, giving me antibiotics. And I'm like, it's not fixing the problem. It's like putting a bandaid over a bruise. It's not, it's not, it's not even putting a bandaid over a bruise. It's like putting, just ignoring it so that it can get worse and worse and worse. And see, this is a thing about doctors. I have some amazing doctors, but it took me a while to get them. Yeah. But most doctors are just treating the symptoms and not listening. They're not listening. So that was a journey of mine. And uh, so I, what I had realized um, many, many years later is it didn't matter what I was doing with my ears, they weren't healing. So I went beyond, okay, what is it that I can do or control, control or the doctors? Like, what is it that I need to heal inside of me? And my friend introduced me to uh, plant medicine, ayahuasca, actually. And I did a a few ceremonies with a shaman. And I'm not one to do recreational drugs. I don't agree with it for myself personally, because I've seen what it can do to somebody. But if it's a natural, like uh, on this earth, like Homeo- on the, the word is homeopathic. Yes, as long as like, and then, but it's a hallucinogenic and you do, you, you do feel out of control and I'm very type A. I like to be in control of myself. And, but anyways, I trusted my best friend. She had done a few experiences with this shaman who led the ceremony. And what I discovered during my journey, and you don't get it in that moment. Cause it comes at you like at 12 D 10 D like shapes, 
sizes, like shadows, like it's, it's next level. You don't really understand it. But what came through to me was I had prayed as a little girl. I didn't want to hear my parents fight anymore. So as a three-year-old, I started getting ear infections. And then from that time, it got worse and worse and worse. And um, in 2014 was almost when I died. Like one more day, the disease would have ate into my brain and I would have went brain dead and and I would have been too far gone. And in 2015, I did my first ceremony. And when I did was done the ceremony, it showed me my little girl self praying. Mm -hmm. And I had to go back and rewrite this soul contract, my little girl self. And I just did a visualization, like went in it, like closed my eyes and just visualized it. And since 2015, I can say I have not had one ear infection or one block energy block in my ears. And that is one thing I struggled from. I was born in 1988 to 2014 when it almost took my life and nobody was listening. Nobody wanted to hear, hear it. And I found a a doctor, like you said, there's a few out there and he's my earthbound angel. He got me in within three weeks. He knew the seriousness of it. He didn't say you're going to die, but he knew how bad it was because he deals with this type of disease on the weekly. And he got me in and he told me at that point, the, the disease had eaten a hole through my skull that big. So that's how much spinal fluid from my brain was leaking into my ear the night before. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this ear was about to blow off my head and uh, talk about feeling crazy when I look when I look normal on the in- or on the outside. <laughs> it's interesting you talk about that because I was when I was eight back in my day, we had monkey bars on the playground at school, but they anchored the monkey bars into the ground with concrete. Oh, so that's how all the to- all the playground equipment was anchored into the ground in concrete. That was the only thing they knew at the time. You know, I mean, it was uh, we're talking the 60s here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were playing King of the Mountain on top of it. And I fell from the top down through the monkey bars. And the top is like 10 feet. And I yeah. fell flat on my head. Oh, yeah. I was out at the orphanage. They did not take me to a doctor. They did not take me to anything. I started having seizures. Well, of course, when well, you land flat on your head, brain damage. Well, the, the brain swells when you have that kind yeah. of a contusion. And so depending on it. So I just at that point in time, I, I, I just said, you know, did you have an actual wound on your head, too? Well, I had an indentation, but it wasn't it was. And I they mean, did not take you to the hospital. No, these people are like, so I mean, I was in an orphanage that you can't you can't make people care. Yeah, it's but you would hope job. that those it's type of job. people care. Like that <laughs> is your wish. So the yeah. thing is, is we were we were those unwanted ones. So it didn't matter. Is that how they treated you guys? Yes. Every one of them. Was there one that was just special or like? Did well, they had their pets. They had their pets. But the thing was, is they would treat other people if they just didn't care. Or if their pets would say, oh, well, this person's doing that or this person's doing this, you know, to get them into trouble. Interesting. They, you know, I, I mean, we're talking kids here. They're brutal. They're they're har- harsh. They're, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yes, you know, they it are. must be real, you know. I mean, yeah. hey, let me tell you about life. I'm a kid. I don't know anything more about life than you do, but I'm just acting like I do. So follow me. Follow me, you know. So anyway, so they never diagnosed me and they just said, oh, you know, it's the stress. She's, she's having seizures from the stress and put me on phenobarbital. 
Never track meat. What is that? It's like a seizure medicine for epilepsy. Oh, so that wasn't what you were having because it was the actual brain damage or like you said, the, the swelling of the brain. So it was crazy. And so the fact was, is for years from eight to like 18, I had seizures. And then from, from all of a sudden after 18, I don't, I think it was the transition for me and my spirituality that had hit. Well, actually it, um, I would say it was, it was an epiphany that came through and I knew I had spirit guides and they kept telling me, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And one of my spirit guides, his, his native name is Goyaha. And most people don't know that, but and what is what does that stand for or represent? Well, it was Geronimo. Okay, Geronimo was an Apache medicine man, war chief. He was in our in our country. He was bulletproof. They shot him so many times, but bullets did not penetrate him. Wow! So this is who my spirit guide was. So I (laughs) understand. Well. Yeah. I mean, it it was just like, um, like a frontline warrior. Like that's kind of what I'd pick it up like this. Well, the kids at the high school, I, none of them knew I grew up in an orphanage. None of them knew that I didn't have a support system. Well, you probably didn't speak about it either. I did not because I didn't want to seem weak to them, but Mm -hmm. I could be that person that could support them and guide them. That's so funny because I felt that way too. I was too embarrassed to like just own it. And then you put on this persona or like you're strong and got it all together. But it's, it's hilarious how you're saying you had their back because you knew their knew that pain and you could recognize, you know, by observing. Well, I was paying it forward. I was Mm -hmm. paying it forward because I was that kid. A lot of these kids in this country don't have that support system in South Florida. There was a lot of immigrants there and grandma's raising the kids. So mom, dad, and aunts and uncles can go out and do two or three jobs to bring the money into the family. And the Mm -hmm. kids are running the streets. Mm-hmm. because that's very gets, much you know, like um in southeast asia the kids take care of each other and the parents are just get, getting to work to feed the family and you know and keep a, that's what it was but i'm honored to say i was able to get four girls graduated from high school that were homeless wow. and they'd rather sleep under a bridge than at home because their parents were pimping them out for drugs right and it's so, so sad you don't never know anybody's story you, you don't. And so that's why I say when most people say, you know, okay, I was in law enforcement for 40 years, but who knew who you would not know if you looked. And did you share that information with anybody or did you just, I did not to your close personal group? Well, I didn't tell the only one that knew was my family. I didn't even tell my friends. Interesting. And so So when did you start sharing? That would be my question. When, when did you like, this is who I am whether you like it or you don't, and this is where I've been. And this is I've where I'm never, going. <laughs> well, here's the thing is, is I've, I've never cared what anybody thought of me. So I guess that was the reason I didn't feel the need to share because okay. my past did not define who I was. Uh-huh. I was defining me each and every day of what I could See, And do. I allowed it to define me. Interesting. Yeah. So that's why I was embarrassed. I didn't even like to tell people I couldn't hear them. I was like, Oh, sorry. And then, or I wouldn't ask. I'd be like, mm-hmm. Mm-mm. And I didn't even hear what they said. So I'm like, if I give you a shit answer, it's because I didn't hear you. <laughs> right. But here's the yeah. thing was, is if you don't let it define you, 
then you're not labeling yourself. You're not taking on that programming. You're not taking on those agreements in your life. Yeah, I used to be so embarrassed when people would ask who my parents were, like even my last name. Like I was like, ooh, because my dad was like not the best guy. He would do jobs and like he had a chain link company fence where he built fence. So he'd finish a job or not complete it or get paid and not show up. And then when he was living on the streets for many, many years, with addiction, um, it was embarrassing, you know, to me at that time, because I thought it did define me. Yeah. But see that knowing the difference and I was lucky, I had my guides helping me out, showing me the path of what mm -hmm. to walk. And there was many times I said, either give me the strength to fight them off or take me now and just release wow. and just go with whatever. And, and every time it's been, no, you've got the strength, go ahead. And so, yes, I was that badass. I was that one. I was breaking up gang fights at the high school. I mean, I worked the streets of gangs down in Miami-Dade and Broward County. Wow. And so the fact is, is it's, it's being a female doing this, all of a sudden it's like, oh, you can jump fences. You can do this. You can bench press 200 pounds. It's what, what, what? Mm -hmm. I was doing what I needed to do to be able to stay in my power to be able to be that, that person for everybody that needed me, Absolutely. including me. Yeah. So when you found your power, how did you become that wisdom teacher for you? So after university, when I graduated university um, in 2010, I went through a deep, dark depression because I had allowed that identity to be so wrapped up in being a student athlete. And also I was given a schedule my whole life. This is where you need to be, how you need to act, like show up to practice, show up to the games, just very structured routine system. You know, you get good grades and, you know, put your head down and, and just keep trucking forward. So when I was done university, I had um, attracted a man into my life that used um, alcohol and drugs. And I had told him in the beginning, like, I am not comfortable with that. I lost both my parents to addiction. And I lost my mom when I was in grade 11 and I still hadn't grieved that. So for seven years, I just, you know, shoved that down. I didn't know what grief was. Nobody talked about it. Nobody asked me like how I'm coping through that or working through that. Um, I wasn't told to go to counseling or get therapy. So I had a lot of unraveling to do once I was <laughs> done being so busy and so uh, conditioned, I say. And when I had to sit in my own shit, um, it brought up a lot of emotions that I had not um, even acknowledged. Right. And to realize you have more emotions than just two is um, <laughs> really eye-opening. And um, so, yeah, I was very, like, let's say emotional body for quite a while, very depressed, isolated myself, didn't talk to anybody, like just kind of like went to work, showed up for the classes that I needed to, but just went home and, and kept myself. But through that... I woke up one day and my light switch went off and I said, fuck it. Like, this is what this guy wants. He wants me to be crying. And um, it ended up to be where he, when we were in the relationship, he had spit on me one time when we were dating, when we were fighting. And it was like, not just like, a, it was like, like in my face. So when you have a lot of anger and childhood wounds to walk away from that takes a lot of courage. And I did that the first time. And he punched holes in the wall. Like we had to replace so many doors and he tried breaking my TV. He threw my phone out onto the, 
onto the freeway when I lived in Arkansas and he was down there visiting with me. He punched a hole in my door in campus. So I ended the relationship and, but through when I ended it eight months, an eight month period, he wouldn't leave me alone. He'd be like, forgive me. You're my dream girl. You're everything I ever had. And, and anyways, I kind of like, he swoos you back in like narcissist love bombing you. You're just like, Oh, mm -hmm. he's telling me everything I want to hear. Right. Mm -hmm. So like during that time, we never started dating again, but I would sometimes hang out with him. And again, there was one time he didn't get what he wanted. And, um, he, he hawked a loogie on me again, like a loogie, like that in my face. And I'm telling you, I'd rather be punched in the face than spit on. I'm saying from experience. So this is the second time. Well, I kick him out of the car and I'm like, I'm so done with you. And then a month later, he's, um, I find out he's, he's sleeping with one of my family friends, like close to my family. And they're doing it just to stir the pot because that's what they do. So anyways, this was a long time coming. And then when I found out about it, I was about three days to go back for my last year of university. So in 2009, I had, I had one more sem like semester to do, but I was done volleyball in 2009. And anyways, just before I left, this is three days before I was supposed to go back to the U.S. for my last semester of school to finish up. I was already done volleyball, you know, played my eligibility the four years. So he showed up at this pub we were at and this lady who had been sleeping with him was there and she, it was all girls at this pub. All of a sudden this guy walks in. I'm like, Oh, interesting. Right. So anyways, he's talking to my sister and telling her like, Oh, he wants to be with me, but yet we know what's happened. And uh, I just asked him, can you please leave us alone? I'm it, my last night. I, I don't want any drama. Well, he had a beer, a bottle of beer. He plugged the beer and shook it, sprayed me from head to toe like in the bar beginning of the night. So I was like, whoo, walked away again. Like I was like, he wants me to cry. He wants to ruin my night, like walk away, walk away. But I'm about to like cry and just, just I'm done. So anyways, we, we, we go to a different bar. I'm not letting this guy or this lady ruin my night. So it leads to be, they come to this bar, follow us there. The lady he's with starts yelling at me. We're outside at this point. And uh, she's like throwing the ashes at me. She punched me in the head. I like do not like confrontation. I do not want to fight, but I can fight if you want me to fight. Like I, okay. I do have a backbone and, and I've been bullied a lot. So I had a lot of uh, pent up emotions. So it was a volcano waiting to erupt, which it did. So we got kicked out because of course it's drama. They're like, you guys need to go. So we end up on the other side of the parking lot and he hawks a loogie in my face for the third time. After I've been punched, after a beer has been sprayed on me, after eight months of a living hell, after I told him, to like leave me alone you know like an adult and I blew up I didn't even know how to headbutt at this point in my life but I headbutted him because I was the first when he's this close to you like, you know you're just like boom that was my first reaction and then I just punched him and I was like and then he just kept saying hit me again you crazy bitch so I I did it again and I did it again and he got the beating I say looking back the beating of his lifetime but the beating, the anger gets my mom, my dad, every man who wronged me. Um, and then I could hear this lady's voice and she's like acting at this point, it's kind of down the road because he's taking a step every time he says, hit me again. So again, I'm like, and I don't punch like a girl. It's not like, it's no, like, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, psycho. like, sure. I'm crazy in this moment. You bet. Like I totally owned it. And, um, 
at this point, we're like two blocks down the road and my sister's with me. She's just like holding space, not like <laughs> holding me back. And he's just egging me on the whole time. And then the lady who's like, he had been sleeping with is driving on the road. And I could hear her voice saying, Kelly, just get in the truck. It's cold out. So every time I heard her voice, I was like, boom. And then he'd be like, hit me again. So after this two blocks, I grabbed his shirt because I could see in his eyes he was hurt. But he kept saying, hit me again, hit me again. And his, his nose is bloody. His eyes are like already bruising. Like he's, he's hurt. But he keeps saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. But at this point, I, I didn't have any energy. But I grabbed the back of his shirt and he kept walking. And it like literally busted off of him. And then I literally collapsed in my sister's arms. And then, you know, my brother came and picked us up. She's like called, like called him. And it was, it was 930 at night. Like I had, <laughs> I had one drink that night and, and he tried charging me with uh, assault. assault, of course. He, he goes to the cops. I hadn't reported nothing. So he goes to the cops because he knows I'm leaving Monday. So his right. whole goal was to try to fuck me up and not go back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. But little does he know, yes, you could be charged, but you're innocent until proven guilty. And and luckily, I, I had a cop who was on this, um, in this situation. When he heard my story, he's like, yeah, that's nothing what was said. But, you know, I do have to move forward with this. He does want to charge you. So, but I'm not going to make your court date till you're done school. So don't worry. Go back to school. Come back in January. Like, it's not a big deal, Kelly. So go, because that was my biggest night nightmare. Because right. he knew that was going to be my biggest nightmare. Right. He so, was trying to destroy your life. He was trying to destroy my life, and he instigated it and stirred the pot and premeditated it. You bet. Like in, and at that point, anybody would have erupted. Like anybody. Yes. So I, I, I owned it. I told the whole truth and nothing but the truth when they came in a. They came and arrested me, but I asked them, please don't arrest me. Like, I promise I'll cooperate. And they were like, okay, as long as you cooperate, you right. know, I'm shitting my pants. I had followed the rules my whole life, stayed out right. of trouble, did everything in my power to, to just be, you know, of service to the community, coaching and playing high level sports. Like you don't get yourself into trouble because right. people know about it and you're punished right. by your coaches. If you do, oh, <laughs> like severely. you don't get away Se with it severely. You are. Yeah. Punished. And, um, so that was my last semester of school, which started that depression that I had talked about. So my whole life, I was a rule follower, overachiever, workaholic, did everything society tells you to do to be happy and successful. And then what I discovered when I was done school, I was like, who the fuck am I? Because now <laughs> I did everything society says to do. And then I, I attracted this low vibrational being into my life because of my childhood drama or trauma that I didn't heal. And I wanted to be a fixer and a savior and I'm going to heal you. I'm going to change you. And then, you yeah. know, didn't have a boundary, the boundaries we discussed yeah. earlier. I was I just going to no, say you had no boundaries. Zero. I didn't even know what that was. So um, I had a lot of boundaries and like standards for myself, but not how people treated me. And knowing now what I know, um, I gave away my power that night and I don't, I don't blame myself. I don't uh, beat myself, beat myself up because in the past, I mean, I did for a good year and then that light switch went off and I was like, fuck this. Like I made a mistake. I am human. Um, yeah. I can forgive myself. Yes. Was that like extreme? You bet. But when right. someone is pushed and pushed and poked and poked and prodded, mm -hmm. you better expect there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. And uh, in that moment, uh, 
I learned uh, what boundaries were and, and uh, to not give your power away. So those were like beautiful lessons. Um, and then I went and traveled uh, for two years, Southeast Asia. I went to Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Nepal, India. I traveled um, in Australia for three and a half months. I was on the road for, for 10 months at one time in that two year period. And, and I came home in between to like replenish the funds and, and see my family. And then I headed back. So for a two year period, I got to see, I grew up on like in Canadian poverty standards on welfare and then paycheck to paycheck. And, um, what I learned is I did have the education. I did have the support. I did have the teachers and, and the coaches who believed in me. And in some of these communities over there, they don't know anything outside their little community. They don't even know that there's a world or a country outside of that area. And I was very humbled when I went over there because it was a dream of mine as a child. I even made a scrapbook of like cut out pieces from India and the Philippines. And here I was living my dream. So I was crying because of all the pain and suffering over there. And it's very eye opening. You'll be going down the street and you'll see, you know, these kids laughing and playing of just like playing with the simplest thing and bringing joy. And then you'll see a guy like taking a shit on the sidewalk and you're like, oh, my goodness. We and have that in this country. Go to San Francisco. Go to <laughs> And then you like smell this beautiful aroma of curry and um, oh. it's just really eye opening. So I realized, number one, I got educated. So that was a wonderful mm -hmm. thing for me to have. I had the opportunity to make my own money and live a better life so I could go see those places and experience them. And, and it really opened my eyes up to like what pain and suffering is. Yes. So how did you, how did you, um, get on this light worker awoke path? <laughs> so when I was in my deepest, darkest depths of, uh, depression and I, sorry, I got a tickle in my throat. One sec. Oh, you're fine. Secret. When you get every morning, you get up, do lemon water with garlic and hot water. It clears all of this out. And because you have ear issues, yeah. you have probably a lot of post-nasal drip. Well, and I have a, a bit of a, like a snotty nose right now. So yeah, but this will help, clear, it'll yeah. help clear you out. Thank you for that. So You're welcome. Through that, I had to find, so I was very science-based. I had a kinesiology degree, health and exercise science. I did a, my minor in special education and criminal justice, actually. So we have that, that connection there. I thought I wanted to go to law school, but what I discovered is I had the physical body and like, I knew how to use my body to get me to where I needed to go and my mental toughness or, or perseverance or discipline, but I didn't have the emotional, um, and soul and spiritual. And I wasn't a religious person growing up. I wasn't, I, I took a lot of things from different cultures and religions and kind of made my own Bible is what I say. But what I found is um, a lady who did Reiki. So she did Reiki um, and I went to her. So then through that, it inspired me to do level one, level two, and then my master's myself only for my own healing. And that's energy healing to do with your chakras and balancing them. I'm a and, master Reiki also. And aligning them. Yeah. Just for like the people who don't know what that is. Mm. And uh, so anyways, I had a lot of, um, 
energy blocks and uh i had ears nose and throat problems so a lot of mine and it was funny how i was coughing because that's your throat chakra so clearly something needs to be shared or, or let go of too as well so um with that it led me to helping others and sharing sharing this this energy healing with other people and then it led me to um the akashic record readings and angel card reading and psychic mediumship and intuition courses and through that healing myself and working through my shit my bullshit <laughs> is what i call it we I all have bullshit it. but uh, mm -hmm. we gotta I deal with it. it and the only way out is through so through that sitting in my my shit um i had some amazing tools that I was like, okay, I got to share these with people. So people came to me because I had a, a, a fitness, like a private studio from 2015 to 19, a private studio where people would come and train. And I did dry lands and sports specific training. And I did a kids empowerment class for kids who have like anxiety or ADHD and, and don't do well in, in, in a normal setting in this, in the gym, in classes. So they would come to me for that. And then I did a lot of, um, general population, just people who want to lose weight, gain weight. And then um, I did nutrition as well. So I, I, my approach was body, mind and soul. Mm -hmm. But people would come to me for the physical like, hey, get me in shape or train me for this season coming up or this, this, you know, whatever they were doing, climbing a mountain or right. going for a walk or wanting to get on the airplane and fit in one seat instead of two, like, right. it didn't matter. I had clients who were underweight and then i had clients who were 450 pounds to you know ex um drug addicts and strippers to like doctors wives and dentist wives and you know business owners and ceos so i had every walk of life from eight years old to 65 years old and and i did uh yeah like strength and conditioning powerlifting, that kind of stuff so what people realize is they would come to me for training and then they're like, okay, Kelly, I want to get on this nutrition train. Like, how do I feel my body? How do I feel it for my goals, feel it for my lifestyle? And then once they got through that, they're like, okay, what is this uh, hamster wheel like going in my head and my heart still hurts and I feel like not whole. So then that's where I would um, introduce the healing and the energy work. And what I discovered through working with, I, I trained 60, 70 people a day. So I, I worked with... Uh, lots of lots of people and different lifestyles like i said right. um and what i discovered is we can't out train our stress we can't out smart our shit marriages or our <laughs> trauma we can't out eat even if you're eating all whole foods and all the things we've been told to do if you do not know the science behind food the science of how the body works how it digests it you know, if you're stressed or overworked or you're in fight, flight or freeze or fawn. Um, also, what are your attachment styles? So like you can just go so deep with, uh, you know, our um, let's say our emotional body shows up through our physical bodies, through ailments, aches and pains, diseases, illnesses, cancers, toothaches, coughs, frogs in your throat. You know, pain in your disease, heart. autoimmune diseases, the list goes on. Yeah, ear infections. So my emotional <clears throat> body showed up a lot of my physical body. So what I started realizing is working with so many people there, there, there was these certain patterns. And I was like, interesting. So now when I shut down my, my physical location, um, it was devastating because I had a lot of clients. It was amazing. 
But I, my first intention when I did open the doors, I was like, I'll do it for three to four years, see what I like, what I don't like, what works, what doesn't, what people want, what they don't want. And what I realized is I can't keep up with training 60 to 70 people a day, especially when I have a, a family now. I'm a full-time uh, stepmom and I want my own family. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this. So at that time, I thank the universe, God, because I closed down in June 2019. COVID rolled out six months later. So I was like, whoo, they had my back. So I actually felt blessed that my lease, when I started it from 2015 to 2019, it just worked out perfectly. So at that time, when I shut my doors, I was like, I'm going to transition to online because then I can help a lot more people. And I only want to like support and mentor and guide people. I don't want to be the everyday handholding um, teacher, let's say. I would just, mm -hmm. I'd like to do like the seminars and the workshops and the retreats and then just like um, do the accountability and support calls during, you know, the times that, that I am available. So now my mission is to help pe people heal from the inside out. You know, why do mm -hmm. we do the things we do? What is showing up for you in your physical body that's actually the emotions and you know that soul and spirit and that heart that are you know needing to be heard and seen and and like valued this rec this is a <clears throat> how should how can i put this this is reminiscence of so many people who have been victimized when they were a child and the fact is is that they carry they carry the shame but they had, there was nothing they could do to stop it. There was nothing they could do to prevent it. There was nothing they could do. And they carry that shame into their adult life and it affects you. I'm so, again, uh, proud of you that you didn't allow it to keep you in that victimhood because that oh, ruins people's lives. Yes. It paralyzed me for moments in my life. Yeah. I, I, I would be lying if I did not say that. Um, whether it was imposter syndrome or just like, oh, like don't know what decision to make, but I feel like I did have guides and angels just keep pushing me along and these little voices inside of me. And when you just kind of get quiet and still enough and away from the bullshit and the chaos of what other people want you to right. do or to be, it, it's actually very clear, you know, oh, and, and right. you just have this inner knowing and you're just yes. like this North compass, you know, this North star. And, and it's beautiful once you get in alignment with that. Well, when you take that pause and listen, yeah, that is the, that is the paramount key in getting the clarity and getting that moment to silence all of the overthinking and the woulda, coulda, shouldas. Yeah. So, uh, I want self sabotage. Oh, and, you know, I was a workaholic. So just because I wasn't a drug addict, alcoholic, I was a workaholic. And you know, whether Dude. you're you're an alcoholic, a drug addict, a gambler, a shopaholic. Just because one's more um, accepted by society, there might be a longer life span in that. It yes. doesn't mean it's not a crutch or being too busy. Being busy or an no excuse. Busy. Yeah, or an no excuse. accountability. Yeah. Or an yes. excuse. So yes. it's it's absolutely amazing. So like I said, I love the fact that you took what was a shit show of a of a childhood yeah. and turned it into empowering mentally, physically, emotionally, and giving people clarity. That's what I do. I That's it. what I've done all my life. Because if you don't have clarity, I'm one of, a, my, my parents had more children. Yeah. I'm one of 11 children. Wow. Out of 11, I'm only two that has a college degree. 
I'm only one of four that owns a home out of 11. So wow. I didn't become a product of society. I yes, was that exactly. wasn't in my cards. Like we're a and, product of our environment. Yes. We actually seen what can happen. And then we're like, oh, see ya. <laughs> like not happening. Stage, stage left. I'm out of here. So the yeah. fact is, is I like you <clears throat> and a lot of kids that champion themselves don't do drama. They don't want it. They come from a low key, low background. You know, they're, they're all about staying focused on their path and their mission because they know that if they get distracted, it takes them off where they want to go. So there, that's why they're so single-minded and focused and that can be good, but that can be get, be bad because it limits yourself. Of course. But I just wanted to say thank you for coming on my podcast today. I loved speaking with you, hearing your story. I appreciate you being vulnerable enough to talk about your backstory. And I encourage you to keep speaking about the struggles and the overcoming those obstacles and challenges, because we need more people in the world to be able to show you can do anything. Yeah. Yes. And that is my, my mission and purpose is through my pain. I want to share my story and give people hope who maybe haven't found their voice yet, or they're, you know, to be able to take the next action step towards, you know, creating that life of design and, and just leaving this place a better better place than what we found it and just yeah not being a victim of what's happening and um, just know that there is there is hope and if you have a bit of faith and you know just look for guidance or support or if you can't find that outside of you go within and and it can lead to amazing amazing places if you just take the first step yes it is the first step thank you hang thank on you, Chris. i appreciate that okay hang on it takes a special kind of individual to dream their thoughts and ideas and turn them into reality. Kelly McDuff has done just that. She stepped past her fears. She stayed the course and had the courage to follow through to the end. Kelly McDuff, you've championed yourself. Now we know who you've become. Thank you for sharing your ideas, your thoughts, your dreams, and your vulnerability with us today.